Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We're going to get back into our series when I get back from Indonesia. And uh, do be praying for us. Uh, we're going to connect with one of the pastors from Columbia in Houston. We fly out 6 o'clock uh, Wednesday morning. We arrive in Jakarta midnight Friday night. Then we spend the night there and then take a nut, fly overnight again to some island. I mean, Indonesia's like 17,000 islands. And so... Uh, but we're going in to minister into some, there's a, a leader in, in uh, Indonesia, we're going to minister in his church and then minister in a Bible school, do a pastor's conference. And I just have a sense about this, this trip that God wants to break some things open. And so uh, be praying for us. It's the most populated Muslim nation in the world. It's got the largest Muslim population in the world. And so they need a move of God. And uh, Indonesia has seen a move of God in the past, and so we're believing God for some real breakthrough. And so as, as you think of it, pray for us. I've got to spend two weeks with my brother, so I'll need it. Amen? Okay. All right. We're going to receive communion at the end this morning, and here I am opening my elements. I better put that down. I'm fiddling with it. Oh. All right. There we go. Okay, but what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the idea of covenant. Uh, last time we took communion, and so uh, over these next few times when we receive communion, I want to lay some groundwork so that we really understand what we're doing. Uh, the, you know, communion, the, the Lord's Supper, is a covenantal meal, and it is rich with revelation of what God has done for us and how he wants us to utilize that covenant, and how he wants us to utilize this meal. Uh, Jesus said when he, he took the Passover with his disciples and he renamed it, he reframed it for them, and he said, this is now the new covenant in my blood. And by that, he instituted a new meal. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. So whenever we do it, we're to remember what he did. It's supposed to, we're to recollect or recollect some of these ideas and put them in the forefront of our mind so we can remind ourselves so that we can look through the lens of what he has accomplished for us. The fact is we can accumulate truths that we can easily lose. How many of you ever lost something that God has spoken to you about? Uh, I had a vision one time that I forgot about until Roger reminded me this morning. And so we can lose touch with those things. And so God has given us this wonderful, helpful tool, this covenant meal that we can go back to and that we can remind ourselves what he did for us. But we need to understand what a covenant is. Because if we don't understand covenant, we leave a lot of value on the table, so to speak. There's things that we, we're partaking of it, but we don't really we can't leverage it in our life. We don't really understand what's going on. So now, the, the, the foundation of what I'm going to say this morning was what we talked about last time. So I, I want to say it was like three, four weeks ago, five weeks ago. Just look back on the podcast, and it should say something about the blood. And I laid a groundwork for an understanding of the blood. Why does God value the blood, and how do we utilize it in our own life? Because the blood of Jesus is something that we offer the Father, it's something that's Godward. It's also something that we apply to our own heart. And it's also a weapon we use against the enemy. 
The foundation is using it in, in approaching the Father. If we don't understand why God values the blood, then we can't really apply it to our own heart. Scripture's clear. There's, a, there's the shed blood that we offer to the Father, but there's the sprinkled blood that we apply to our own heart. It's a different application of the same blood of Jesus. And so we can't understand how to apply it to our heart unless we first understand how God values it. And we can't really use it as a weapon against the enemy until we understand how to use it in our own heart. We're to cleanse our heart of a guilty conscience through the sprinkled blood. And that gives us our on-ramp into what we're going to talk about this morning. Now again, communion is a covenantal meal. Covenant is common to the ancient world. In fact, it's, it's very common to many Eastern nations to this day. We as the West and our advanced technology, our, our advancement, we have lost the meaning of covenant and therefore we're at a disadvantage when we look at this wonderful truth in Scripture. Covenant is not some side issue in Scripture. It's not even one doctrine among many. It's an actuality. It's the, the framework. It's the, con, it's the context of all the other content. The Bible is a covenantal book. God deals with us through covenants. And if we don't understand what covenants are, we don't really understand much of the word. Really, the last residue of covenant that we have in Western culture is, of course, the marriage covenant. The marriage covenant is to be entered into. It's not a marriage contract, even though some people try to reduce it to that. And there's a reason for that. The, mar- the purpose of covenant is to make two people, parties, nations, tribes, to take two and bring them together and make them one. That is the purpose of covenant. The marriage covenant is to make the two into one. The covenant with God. We were alienated from God, but God is gonna remove the barriers and we're to come into oneness with him through covenant. So much so that just like in ancient times when someone, when two tribes would enter into covenant with one another, if you attacked the person that you were in covenant with, you were obligated to go to war with them. Because when they attacked your covenant brother, they attacked you. When they stole from your covenant brother, they stole from you. And so what was yours belonged to them and vice versa. And it's a beautiful picture of our relationship with God. What I brought to the table was sin. What God brought to the table was redemption and the kingdom of heaven. What was mine he took on, and I get to take on what is his. It's a covenant act. And so we need to understand covenant. Now, covenant is, the purpose of covenant is to make two parties into one party, okay? But the, the, the method of doing that was to remove all doubt in the hearts of the covenant partners. Think about it in, the, in regards to marriage. When you get married... You're in love, hopefully. <laughs> you're, you're, you're in love with that person. And over time, you hopefully grow in love and you surrender yourself more to them. But the only way for you to do that is there has to be trust between those two partners. And if you don't trust, you can't surrender yourself to that person. That's why marriage is a covenant. 
And so the purpose of covenant is to remove all the barriers, to remove the doubt, to remove any kind of uh, uh, fears in those individuals so they can fully give of themselves to one another. That's the idea of covenant. And so God instituted this idea of covenant. Now, all down through history, in actuality, in the ancient world, covenant put the civil in civilization. It was, covenant was the way that people would enter into agreements and enter into relationships. It was the way that they would know, hey, we're safe. We can live amongst these people. These two tribes can live with one another in peace. These two families can live with one another in peace. So covenant was a way to, to really uh, create trust among people so they could live together. So that's why I say it put the civil in civilization. Today, what we've replaced covenant with is, of course, contracts. When you're in covenant with someone, the objective is that you trust them so much that you fully surrender yourself to them. What, what is mine is yours and vice versa. I trust you. If you don't have that trust, the only way to really work with people, the only way to really enter into to business with people is you have to have a contract at, you know, that it operates really by fear of retribution. If you don't live up to your end, then there's going to be consequences that I'm going to have the courts enforce. In ancient society, they would enter into covenants before God, understanding that God was the one who would honor the covenants. God would be the one who would enforce the covenants. In the book of Jeremiah, it has this interesting phrase. It talks about when they walked among the pieces. And it's a reference to a covenantal ceremony that we see Abraham enter, enter into in Genesis chapter 15. In that passage, God makes a promise to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And Abraham asks this question that God could have easily took offense to. He said, how, do, how can I know this is going to happen? How are you going to bring this about? And rather than rebuke him, God says, go get some animals and bring them before me. And God was asking him to make a sacrifice. So what Abraham did is he cut the hind parts and the forequarters and he laid them out in, in four pieces. And this was a common covenantal ceremony. It was common among the, uh, the people, the Mesopotamian people of that area. But rather than walk through the pieces like most people would, Abraham did not do that. He just, he just laid out the sacrifice and then waited. And it says a deep darkness came over Abraham. He went into a sleep. Prior to that, it said the birds, these birds began to attack his sacrifice. And all of this is, has rich symbolism about, around it. The enemy was trying to attack his sacrifice before God. And Abraham wanted to enter into covenant with God, but Abraham knew better to, than to initiate it himself. Because this specific type of ceremony was a very serious ceremony. It's what's alluded to in Jeremiah when it's called, they walked among the pieces. And what they would do is they would walk in a circular eight fashion between those, or it was also called the valley of blood. It was called the walk of death or the valley of blood. And they would walk in this this. The circle, uh, the circle eight uh, way in the bloody portions, and then they would stand in the midst of this animal torn asunder, and they would make the vows of the covenant, and they would make their promises, 
They would state what they're gonna give in this covenantal relationship. Then the partner would do the same. And then they would say this. This is how they would bind themselves to their promises. They would say, and so be it unto me as was done unto this animal if I do not fulfill the vows of my covenant. It's a very, very serious thing in ancient culture. Now when Abraham lays those pieces out, he recognized what God was asking of him. But Abraham didn't enter in because Abraham knew the weakness of his own heart. How many of you would want to enter into a covenant with God in that fashion and say, God, I give you my all, and if I ever renege, so be unto me as was done unto this animal. I'm not standing in line. So it says that a deep darkness came upon Abram, and he went into a deep sleep. And in this dreamlike state, a smoking fire pot and a torch began to move through the pieces. And then the Lord made promises to him. And it was a picture of God initiating covenant with himself. The promises were made to Abraham, but the covenant was cut by God himself. In the book of Revelation, we see Jesus showing up in the before John the Beloved, the one who'd laid his head on Jesus' chest, but now he shows up in this way that's terrifying and his eyes are like flames of fire. They're like a torch and his, his legs are like burnished bronze. And it's a picture of that, that flaming furnace that walked through the pieces. What Abraham saw was the pre-incarnate Christ coming and walking among the pieces and cutting covenant with the Father. Jesus entered into covenant with the Father and we enter in with him into covenant. We are, we are folded into that covenant. And so God bound himself by himself. Hebrews says he couldn't find anything greater to swear by but his own name. He swore by himself and bound himself to covenant. The whole idea is Covenant is, the, the, the purpose is to remove all doubt on the, in the, on the part of the covenant partner. So in the New Testament, what did God do? He foreshadowed it in Genesis 15 with Abram. But what he did is he sent his son to enter into covenant with the father. Jesus came and offered himself as the sacrifice. Romans 5 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much more now that we're redeemed, will he not give it, that's a paraphrase, but now that we're in relationship with him, now that we've been made righteous, how much more will he not give us all things? It's an amazing statement. There were two things that God, only two things in heaven that God could give that he couldn't just snap his fingers and recreate. God could have given gold and treasures and angels and all those things and just recreated. But the two things he gave to you and I were the two uncreated elements of heaven, his son and his spirit. And he did it precisely to communicate a message to us. I remember when I first got saved, I, I was raised in church and 
knew the Lord as a kid and drifted away, and I, I picked up a lot of uh, bad theology, and just, I had a lot of, uh, I, I held God at arm's length. I didn't trust God, and that's why I ran from him. I picked up some lies along the way. And I remember telling God, I said, God, I don't love you and I don't want to serve you, but I know you got what I need. I've made such a mess in my life. If you will give me the want to, I'll go through the motions until you do, but just change my heart. Give me a desire because right now I don't want to serve you. And God was gracious. He began to work in my heart and, and soften it. But God began to deal with me and show me his love. And during that season when I was in Teen Challenge, there was a song we used to sing. And I don't remember all of it, but I remember this one phrase. It, it was, essentially, it was talking about, you know, look at Jesus hanging on the cross. He outstretched his arms. And, uh, and then it said, how can you ever say no to this man? Anybody ever remember that song? How can you ever say no? I won't sing it for you. I'll clear the room. How can you ever say no to this man? And it was really bringing us into that, that drama of all that he'd done for us. And then he's saying, what more can I do? I gave you the only thing I can't replace, my son. Then I gave you my spirit. What more can I do to prove to you my commitment to you, my love for you? That was the message of the song. And I remember that just began to minister to my heart and I began to realize that I had some misconceptions. We've talked about this many times, but the foundation of the human problem is the lies we believe about God and the corresponding lies we believe about ourselves. That was the entrance of sin. Theologians talk about original sin. It was the sin of Adam and Eve, and it opened the door. Romans 5 is clear that through the disobedience of one man, sin came into the world and death through sin. The door was swung wide open, and everything changed after that. But we need to realize that behind original sin was an original lie, and that original lie was this. God can't be trusted. That was the lie in Eden. And covenant is designed to address that lie. And there's not a person in this room that overcame that lie permanently as an event. Some of us more than others still struggle with the lie and some of us more than others have come into the truth some of that is because of how you were raised and, and the, the, the theology you were raised with, the way you related with your earthly father and all kinds of other complex things. But the fact is, we all struggle with that lie. Can I really trust him? And that's why we need to continually partake of the Lord's Supper. Because we're to remember what he did. And we're attacking those lies that God can be trusted. In order for us to fully surrender to him, we've got to be fully convinced in his heart towards us. And the cross was this resounding message. What more can I do to prove to you my commitment to you? And when we partake of communion, we're reminding ourselves, while we were yet sinners, while we were still enemies, 
Christ died for us, how much more, how much more will he not give us all things now that we're redeemed? When we were talking about the blood a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how the enemy has a primary weapon, and that weapon is accusation. It's really a double-edged sword. It's accusation and condemnation. He first accuses you, and there's always at least a kernel of truth in his accusation. He accuses you, and then he condemns you for what you did. And if we don't understand how to use the blood against that, then we stand condemned and we'll always stay outside of God's presence. If God can't lie to you, or I mean if the enemy can't lie to you about God, God being good, and therefore keep you out of his presence, then what he'll do is lie to you about you and tell you you're not good enough. Fact is, none of us are good enough in and of ourselves, but we are good enough under the blood. And we need to learn how to apply that to our heart. And so the blood of Jesus is the way that God paves the way for us to get in. The cross is the resounding message that God can be trusted. That hard taskmaster mentality that God is going to require of things of you that he hasn't already provided for you. That thing has to be eradicated and it has to be attacked. And much of our Christian life is us growing in faith as he reveals his faithfulness. And the, the result of that is a greater and a deeper surrender to him. And it's a lifelong thing that we need a greater revelation. When, we're, when we sing here in, uh, in worship and we cry out, we say, God, I want to know you more. I want to see you more. It's not just some curiosity that we have. It's a necessity. We've got to see him for who he is. Because seeing him for who he is, it's what's going to eradicate the things that are destroying our lives. The things that keep us from him. Because when I have bad theology, when I have wrong thoughts about him, I won't approach him for who he is. My beliefs will determine my behavior. And it will especially determine my behavior in regards to my relationship with him. Many of us struggle with condemnation and the accusation of the enemy and we've never learned to enter into what covenant provides for us. And we kind of stand on the outside of the Holy of Holies feeling guilty. Almost as if we're, we're gonna pay a little bit of penalty. We'll stay on the outside because we lost it with the cat or whatever. Or your children or your wife or your spouse, don't bump them. It, you know, whatever. You, you failed, and then you feel like you have to stand on the outside of the Holy of Holies. And that is not Christianity. We need to learn to apply the blood of Jesus to the door, doorpost of our heart. To cleanse our hearts of a guilty conscience. So that we can stand in his righteousness. Years ago, uh, we, when I was working for Teen Challenge, we used to have devotions, staff devotions. The, the students would do what they called devos. They would read it chapter of scripture and they'd write on it. Meanwhile, we were down in the, the dining room and we'd have devotions with each other and somebody would share something from the word among the staff. And that morning, John Hostetler, uh, he was one of our staff members, was a pastor here in Iowa as well. And uh, John was telling us, he said, I was reading about Jonah. He said, so I started looking up about the Ninevites. He said, they were some bad dudes. 
the Ninevites. That's why Jonah didn't want to see them get saved. When they got saved, he got bummed. When people answered his altar call, he was like bummed out. That's kind of dysfunctional, you know. But when you hear about how the Ninevites treated people, you kind of understand. They used to skin people alive. I mean, there were some gross people. One of the things they used to do is they would stand their prisoners, their captives, on a, at the end of a field, and they'd tell them, listen, if you can run to that end of that field before we catch you, you're a free man. You know, and the, the prisoner's thinking, skinned alive, possible freedom. I'll take door number two. What they didn't know is that the Ninevites had this game they would play with their prisoners. And the guy would start running down the field, and they had already made bets on how far he would run without his head. And they would ride up behind him on a horse, and with a big old sword, they'd snap his head off, and his body would keep running, and then it would flop, and they would laugh, and, they would, and whoever got closest would make the money. And John is telling us this, and I looked at him just like you're looking at me, like, Pastor, why did you put that in my head? He didn't have an application for it. It was just a gross story. So we went upstairs. So then we had chapel, and we're in worship that morning. And I'm worshiping the Lord, trying to get this picture out of my head. And the Lord spoke to me because it was very relevant to my life at that time. He said, Dave, that's exactly what the enemy does to you. He cuts you off from the head and makes bets on how long you'll last. Jesus is the head, and we've got to be connected to him relationally, or we won't last. So what the enemy does is he's got a big old sword called condemnation on one side. It's a double-edged sword. Condemnation and accusation. And he tries to cut you off from the head. If he can cause you to begin to feel guilty and identify yourself with your failure, if he can't push you into doing something wrong, he'll beat the stuffing out of you over not doing enough right. And you'll, you'll never get there there. That's where the enemy, not that I wasn't falling into doing things wrong at times, but the enemy would just ride me about you didn't read the word enough. You didn't fast enough this week. You didn't pray enough. Man, I got, I got so legalistic. I, I remember making vows to God. I'm gonna pray Two hours a day, I'm going to be in the Word. I'm going to fast this many days a week. And I remember just hitting the wall and crying out to God and saying, God, I can't do it anymore. He didn't say this, but now looking back, I think what he was saying, I never asked you to. I put it on myself. I was trying to earn his righteousness. And it was during that season the Lord began to teach me about the blood. And on the tail end of that is when John Hostetler told that story. The Lord has given us a weapon of defense. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they loved not their life unto the death. The first weapon out of the sheath is the blood of the lamb. And make no mistake about it, that verse, in that verse, you use the blood, Satan word. It's used against the enemy. There's verses where we present the blood. Jesus presented it to God and we enter into that and we present the blood on our own behalf. When the enemy accuses you and begins to beat you up and condemn you, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, but look at Matthew 5, it says, agree with your adversary when you're on your way to the judge. Like, what's the deal with that? Jesus assumes we're always guilty? No, no. 
When you're going to the judge of all the earth, as Abraham called Jehovah, when you're on your way to the secret place, the enemy will always condemn you. He's the accuser of the brother, and he accuses us before the throne day and night. How does he gain access to the throne? He doesn't. It's when you go to the throne, he accuses you to keep you out of the secret place. Because if you believe God is continually disappointed with you, if in your mind when you approach God there's this simmering, this low burn disappointment in you, like, oh, here he comes again, Dave, the failure, my son bought him and now I'm stuck with him, come on in, what, what do you want? I, I used to feel that, I felt like God was clicking his throne, you know, his little finger on his throne, oh man, here he comes again. And I'd come in timidly, God, rather than come boldly before the throne of grace in our hour of need. But in order to come, I'm telling you, if you come boldly before the throne of grace based on your own righteousness, you're in deception. And God loves you enough, he will not allow you to find rest and security there. He will allow failure into your life till you throw up your hands and say, God, I can't do it on my own. And that's where he gives us that revelation of the blood. The blood of Jesus is our plea. The blood that has satisfied every righteous requirement of God. Once made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation, Scripture says. What does that mean? It means he fulfilled all of righteousness like he told his brother, John the baptizer. He said, I must fulfill it all. Because he wanted to give a perfected life to the Father. And the life that was in the blood of Jesus was a life that fulfilled every requirement. And that's the life that we provide the Father. That is the entry fee into the throne room. I used to imagine a big old whopping angel standing outside the throne room. And I was wanting to get in. And I'd, I'd imagine him saying, all right, buddy, I'm going to have to card you. Do you got what it takes? Do you have a righteous life? And I would go through these mental gymnastics. In and of myself, I do not. My life without him has been an utter failure. But I've got this life in this bowl of blood. And the angel would step back in reverence. Oh, my, come on in. Enter in. And I would go in and worship the Lord. And I had to retrain my heart and mind. The blood of Jesus answers on our behalf. The blood of Jesus is what the weapon we use against that accusation and that condemnation. We don't argue our own righteousness. We agree with the enemy. Yep, you're right. You know what? Thank you. Thank you, devil, for reminding me what the Bible says is true. But I don't approach based on my own righteousness. I, pay, I approach God based on the righteousness of Jesus that was completed 2,000 years ago and that you can't touch this. You can't, you can't close the door on this. I have free access when I approach based on the blood. And so we begin to apply that. So covenant is God's answer for all of this. Our doubts about God and our doubts about ourselves. Our doubts about God because God is saying, listen, I'm willing to bankrupt heaven and give, give the worship of all of heaven in your stead. Jesus took on human flesh and walked among us and experienced everything we did. 
all, every temptation we ever experienced and then gave his life. Make no mistake about it. Jesus faced every temptation and came out righteous. You say, well, I don't ever see in the scriptures Jesus struggling with crack cocaine. What Jesus struggled with was what's behind crack cocaine. That flight from pain, that momentary escape that I'm not going to follow, I'm going to take a break from following God. I'm going to get off this path of suffering so I can get a little bit of relief. And he resisted that. C.S. Lewis has this wonderful phrase. He said, not only does Jesus know temptation, he's the only one who really does. He's the only one who rode that thing all the way to the end. You and I have experienced temptation, and we got bucked off at some point, but Jesus rode that thing into the ground and tamed it. He experienced all of temptation and conquered it. And so when we see what he did for us, it's to minister to our heart. And every time we take communion, we're to remind ourselves of that. We're to recollect, we're to recollect all these truths and put them in the forefront of our mind and feast on them in the Lord's Supper and remind ourselves the price he paid and that he has proven himself trustworthy, worthy of our trust, that we can surrender ourselves. And once that is conquered, once you've really begun to enter into, I know he is trustworthy, then you've got to begin to work on your, you've conquered your theology, so to speak. We're always going to grow in that, but you've nailed that down. I know he's trustworthy. Then you work on your identity, and you fight the enemy's accusations, and you find your identity in Christ and not in your own behavior, your own performance. And both of those are in communion. You can put it this way. Let's go ahead and if you don't if, if you don't have uh, your communion elements, I'm going to ask the, the band to come on up. We're going to close by receiving the Lord's Supper today. You can put it this way: Man had a problem. There was the God side of it and there was the human side of it. That problem was guilt. There was legal guilt. That's the God side. We had broken moral law and God required that that be satisfied because God is just. That had to be satisfied. And the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Calvary, satisfied legal guilt and paid for that with Jesus' blood. But there are a lot of people who understand that God satisfied the legal guilt, but they still struggle with psychological guilt. They still identify with it. And I'm telling you that the answer is the same. The blood of Jesus will deal with your psychological guilt. I remember a guy that was discipling me uh, he was the, the guy that ran the Bible, little first Bible school I went to. Tremendous man of God. I, I'm so appreciative that I had him in my life. But I wasn't appreciative of this. One time he, he'd heard my testimony. He knew my dad was a pastor and that my dad had left full-time ministry because of my brother and I's drug use. 
And he asked me, he said, don't, aren't you racked with guilt over your father leaving his calling over your behavior? And I thought for a moment, I thought, not until now. <laughs> no, really, I, 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 when he said it, I just, I was puzzled. And I told him, I said, no. Because I'm not that person anymore. That person died with Christ. I'm a new creation. I, I, I am incapable of feeling guilty about who I used to be. Because that man is dead and buried. And we celebrate that in here. Some of you, you deal with psychological guilt. The enemy use, uses accusation about your past and even your present. And you're thinking, man, I'll get over this when I get my behavior in order. And I'm telling you, you'll never get your behavior in order until you get over that. Because guilt will lock your mind on your behavior. Guilt will block your mind on the things of the flesh. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8. He who minds the things of the flesh walks after the flesh. He doesn't say if you've got a real positive attitude and you really want it, the flesh, you'll walk after the flesh. He said if you've got your mind on it, you're going to walk after it. And accusation and condemnation locks our mind on our fleshly failings. And it, it sentences us to repeating them again and again. And we've got to find a way out of the cycle. And I'm telling you, the way out of the cycle is to step out and approach the Father based on Jesus' righteousness and not our own. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.